and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Kids, you're dismissed for Children's Church. Remember, that's all three-year-olds up to third grade. We have an awesome little program and uh, lessons set up for them. Oh, and uh, this month is uh, our fifth Sunday uh, for March, and so we'll actually, the kids are preparing a song to sing and all that kind of wonderful stuff for our fifth Sunday, so uh, always, always fun things happening. We could probably get one of the teenagers to preach that week, couldn't we? <laughs> well, we'll see what happens. I love preaching the Word of God. I, I love God's Word. Uh, I love the promises that it holds. I love the truth that it has to, for us to live by. And so I'm always excited to come to this. However, I know, and, and a lot of preachers have to fight with this, that the sermon, they think that the sermon is the most important thing. While I love to preach and I'm going to always do my best, I want you to know that this is not where the best thing happens. If you're not involved in a small group, then you're not where the good stuff happens. So I want to encourage those of you who are in a group and maybe you haven't been very good attending to really to commit to that and because that's where you'll find uh, life change happening in small groups. So um, I'm glad you're here today. I, um, I, I have to apologize. I don't know if you noticed that the letters were a little blurry. Uh, did you guys notice that? Or is that maybe I got the fermented juice this morning? I don't know, but I, you know, we had a busy weekend this weekend, and I at seven thirty last night, I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot to do the slides. So I was doing this late at night. It appears that I got some sort of shadow on the back of those. I apologize. Uh, I hope that didn't uh, distract you from the reading of God's word. Have you ever um, have you ever heard someone telling a story? And you're over there thinking, he's talking about me. He's getting ready to say mine now. I'm, and, and then they get to the point where they name the person they're talking about and it's somebody else. And you're like, oh man, I was sure they were talking about me. It, has any of that happened to anybody? Or just me? Uh, maybe. A couple of people have, have experienced that. Well, 
this morning, as we come to our text, and we're in Luke chapter 12, 1 through 12, there is a group of people who are there, and I think they maybe thought the story was about them, and, and in a way it was, but in a way it was really about someone else. The title of my message is when the story about me is really about God. And, and I love the way that Jesus taught. He taught in parables a lot. Um, a parable is simply a story, a lot of times that has a twist involved with it, and you don't really see what's coming. And usually it's quite a boomerang at times when you're like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. This morning is one of those texts. And, and I, want, I want you to, to actually pay attention to the very last verse that we read. Verse 12, it says, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the pe- people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. It's like, well, yeah. It's like, really? You have that hard of a time figuring that out? At times, I think we think, oh, he's telling the story about somebody else, and all of a sudden... We get to the end, and it's like, wait a minute, that was about me. And I want us to actually try to put ourselves in this situation and say, where do I find myself in this story, or do I find myself in this story? Um, the, I, I want to kind of read through this text again and make a little bit of comment as we go through, and then we'll get into uh, what I've got prepared. And he began to speak to them in parables. The man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit, He did all this stuff, found some tenants uh, to lease the property to. Verse 2, when the season came, when when the season would be when harvest happened, he would send someone there to collect their portion of the harvest, and they beat him, sent him away. Did it again. Sent another one. They killed him. And with many others, some they beat, some they killed. We don't know how many. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying they will respect my son but those tenants said to him this is an heir come let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours and they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard and then jesus says what will the owner of the vineyard do well we're going to talk about the rest of that later but i want us to look at this parable just a little bit parables are a lot like onions okay um you got to peel the layers okay and uh, uh, there's a lot of layers to an onion, right? Anyone ever just taken an onion? And I, I know we take it out and we chop it. And my, my wife is specific. I need small diced. I need, I don't even know all the words, but, but she's pretty particular about how she wants her onions cut. But have you ever just taken an onion and just peeled it all the way down to the middle? Well, a parable is like that. Sometimes we have to peel back a layer and see what is, what is going on there. And I want us to look at this first layer and in order to understand this layer, we've got to identify the, the real characters in this story. Because this was spoken in a day and time where it had some meaning to them. However, a parable is, it, it, it travels across centuries. And then there's going to be some things we find out, wait a minute, there's something in here for me as well. For that day and time, as, as these guys listened to the parable, they would have understand this. First of all, the owner is God. He created the vineyard. Okay? Secondly, they would have understood that the vineyard represented Israel. God placed them in their own land flowing with milk and honey. The third thing that they would have understood is the tenants represent the Jewish leaders of the day. 
You see, they had forgotten God and they had turned his temple into a den of thieves. The fourth thing that they would have noticed is the servants represent the Old Testament prophets. God sent many prophets to warn Israel. The last prophet who was wounded in the head surely is a reference to John the the Baptist who was beheaded. And then the fifth thing, of course, the only son represented Jesus. And so we need to understand a little bit of that background that to them, this is what they would have heard. This is what they would have understood. It's my job to bring it to 2020 and say, how in the world will this speak to us? There are four truths that we're going to find in this, in this passage of Scripture, in this parable. And the first truth is this, God is the owner. As we evaluate our place in this story, the same thing is true. God is the owner. In Psalm 24, 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. In this story, the tenants didn't own that land. And, and uh, a, a lot of the way they did business back then was kind of like how Jack farms. Somebody else owns the property and he goes and farms it for them. Um, but, but they didn't necessarily... And I want you to see that in the beginning of the story, it was the owner that did all the work. He tilled the land. He planted the crops. He put in the wine press. He did all of the stuff. It was all his. And then he hired someone to come in and take care of it. And the lesson for me in this is that I don't own anything. I'm just a manager of what God has given for me. It's real easy in our society to claim that things are ours. Any of you heard of sharecroppers? If you're over 40, you know what a sharecropper is. Um, Show that picture of the sharecroppers. These guys work their tail off for somebody else. They worked in the fields like this. This particular crew is picking cotton, but they did all sorts of crops. And a sharecropper is someone that the landowner has working for them only for a share of the crop. So if it was cotton, they'd haul in all the cotton from the field and they'd get X amount portion. So they could take that cotton and they could sell it for their own sustenance or maybe they were raising potatoes and they they got a portion of whatever was raised that's what a sharecropper is and we need to understand that we're far more like sharecroppers in god's kingdom than we are owners the reality is there's only one landowner the big bite the the great big world we live in whether it's in China, whether it's in America, whether it's in Japan, whether it's uh, in any country you think, the landowner is God. He is the landowner. And we get this mentality, I've got all this. And and you ask someone, well, you know, what do you you have? Oh, I I own own this house. And this house is a three-bedroom. It's 2,100 square feet. And we got, well, you ought to see the TV room in my house. The reality is you don't own anything. This is a major hurdle for us as Christians in our society today. Not just Christians, for everyone, because we think everything I have is mine. And in order for us to fully engage in this life with Christ, we need to get one thing straight is that I'm I'm not an owner. I'm only a sharecropper. I'm only working for a share of what God wants to give to me. He's going to take care of my needs. He promises us, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. 
I'm just a sharecropper. And it's so difficult because the reality is we work hard for our money, don't we? How many of you work hard for your money? All right. How many of you don't really have to work very hard and still get money? I, I don't like you. Um, <laughs> we work hard for our money, and so we think, I worked hard, I did this, it's mine. It's mine for me to do with what I want. And the reality is that hinders us from giving to the church because we think, this is mine. I, I deserve this. Why would I give God 10% of Well, the truth is, God's just letting you hang on to 90% of what's His. And we got to flip that around and, and realize we don't own anything, that God is the landowner, and we are just sharecroppers for God. I'm sure God looks at us sometimes in our claim of, this is mine, I did this, I accomplished that, and says, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. See, God has raised us up and put us in this world, which is temporary. And God said from the very beginning, this is just temporary, but it's my world, and I'm the one that owns it, and all the cattle on a thousand hills are mine, everything is mine. We have to understand the ownership principle. God's the owner, not you, not me. What I have is not mine. I've known people who uh, wouldn't own a tool to someone because they were afraid they weren't going to get it back. Don't raise any hands if any of this strikes a chord. Um, maybe you're one of those persons that borrowed the tool and you didn't take it back. Shame on you. But I, I've, I've known people who's like, uh, I, I asked at one time I needed a truck and I said, can I, can I borrow your truck? I really need... No, I don't loan my truck. And there's the mentality that says, this is mine. I'm responsible for it and I don't think you'll take good care of it. And I wonder at times if God's saying, this is mine, I've given it to you, and you're not taking very good care of it. God is the one who's the landowner. We've got to get that focused and just cemented in our brain that he is the landowner. The second truth we're going to come to, and we see it in the story, God is so very patient. I look at this story, and, I, and as I was reading I'm like, why do you keep doing that? Why do you keep sending them back? They're killing them. They're beating them. Why do you keep sending them back? It's because the landowner is patient. He's patient. I, I, I was thinking about this. If this had been a scene from Law and Order, there would have been, uh, you know, uh, the, the cops would have sworn out a warrant and they'd, you know, the police would have been swarming everywhere and we'd, we'd have seen, you know, the Jewish popo rolling up on their new high-powered camels with the, with the flashing lanterns around their necks. I mean, they'd have been all over the place. But the landowner didn't even report the crime. He was patient. He wanted to give them every opportunity to give back to him what was his, what was rightfully his. He sent more and more servants. They beat some. They killed. We don't even know how many there were. The indication was that there was a grip of them. I mean, 
By the way, if you don't understand grip, that means a whole bunch. There, there was a bunch of them. And, he, and they killed them, beat them, and he kept sending them back. The lesson for me and for you is that God is patiently reaching out to you so that you will acknowledge his lordship over your life. He's reaching out to you so that you'll acknowledge his lordship. He sent you all sorts of messengers. Some of you have been in church since the day you were born. You've been in church all your life, and you've been hearing the gospel story. You listen to Christian radio. You listen to sermons online. You've been, you've been sent lots of information, and, and God has reached out to you for years. Some of you are still denying what God's calling you to do, even though he's reached out. But you know what? He hasn't destroyed you because he's patient. The scripture tells us that God is patient, not willing for any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. He's very patient. And we need to understand this about God. However, have you ever tested someone's patience? I've tested my wife's patience before. I'm just here to say it's a good thing I'm able to walk upright. Um, because when I test her patience, boy, I can get in trouble. And I used to test my mother's patience. Oh, my goodness. My mom, you saw her. She's only about this tall. But, man, she was not afraid of any of us. I tower over my mom, never afraid of me. I, I was afraid of her. I did not test her patience. Why do you still test the patience of the landowner, the God of the universe, who's been reaching out to you, maybe some of you for years and years? There's going to come a day when the patience will expire. Hopefully you decide before then that you're going to surrender your life to him and let him be the landowner and you simply be the steward. God's patience is huge. There are reminders all around us that you have a date with death. And you're ever driven by the guys just this weekend walk down to the cemetery, right? Walk by a cemetery kind of reminds you there's a there's a day coming when my address is going to be the one that's on the fence around this property. You see those things. There's reminders all around us. You open the newspaper and read the obituaries. It's a reminder. One day, it's going to be not my name written there. One day, I'm going to be the one. And here's the thing. God's patience will last either until he returns or until you go to him. At that point, the patience is over. You will have lost opportunity. I want to encourage you to think about that today. Don't test his patience. Even though he's a patient, loving God, don't push him. Don't say, I, want, I just want to live like hell most of my life, and then I'm just going to skate in. At the last minute, I'm going to step up, and I'm going to live for Jesus. Don't do that. That's testing God's patience. Today, I'm just the most recent messenger to remind you that God is patient, and he's waiting for you. And he's always waiting with his hands open for you to come to him and surrender to him. The third truth we find in our text, God is loving. God is loving. Psalm 105 says, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generation. 
the homeowner now does in our story what no one would expect him to do. All right, I've got all these slaves and servants. I'm going to send them. Oh, they're beating them up. They're killing them. I know what I'll do. You know, it's like, ah, a big light bulb comes out. I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. And we look at that and say, dumbest move ever. What in the world are you thinking? I'll send my son. Surely they won't beat and kill him. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But we have to always also back up and say, this wasn't necessarily a true story. This is a parable that Jesus told to try to illustrate to people what was going on. But it was also a true story. Because God cried out to people through the prophets. Turn, follow me. Turn from your wicked ways. Go away from the idols. Turn away. And over and over and over again, you read this, the Old Testament, and there's this, the children of Israel, there's this recurring phrase that happens, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. God's been calling and calling. He led them out of Egypt. He's calling, saying, listen, I want you to follow me over and over. And, and I, I wonder if he said, you know, now, I, I don't really believe this. I, I believe God knew from the beginning of time that he was going to send his son. I don't, I, I, even all the messengers that he sent, I think he knew that they would not adhere to the message of the, of the prophets and those who he sent. But it makes you wonder. It's like, they didn't listen to you, God. Why are you going to send your son? We know on this side of the cross that if he didn't, we'd be lost. And we know that that was his plan from the very beginning when Adam and Eve chose to unite with death and separate themselves from God that he needed a plan to bring us back. And that's what he did in his son Jesus. God loves us. He is so loving. The lesson for me is this. He sent his only son to offer us the gift of life. I don't know where all of you are with that. I don't know if all of you have actually accepted Christ into your life. I want you to know that the loving Father sent his Son not to prove a point, not to seem really cool like, wow, he's a good dad. He, he did it to save your life. He did it for you so that you could have eternal life with him. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you have wrestled with the fact of, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know who I am. Uh, I feel kind of lost. I want you to know that Jesus was sent by the landowner to offer us the gift of life. And that gift is truly a gift. It is something that you don't have to pay for. You don't have to get your act right to make it happen. There's nothing you can do to pay for it. It is a free gift of grace. But every gift, unless it is received and opened, is not a gift. It's just a box with pretty wrapping paper on it. Have you ever imagined, can you imagine if, if you have a three-year-old kid and it's birthday time and you set six presents in front of them that are, you know, exorbitantly wrapped and all and he just like well well thanks mom dad appreciate that you're like listen you disrespectful little kid i just spent 150 dollars on this you better get to opening and i wonder if at times we look at the gift of god 
and it's laying in front of us. And we're like, yeah, cool, thanks. Appreciate that, God. And God's like, open it. Open the gift. The gift is there for you. But a gift is only given if it's received. I can offer you $100. I'm not going to. But I could. But the only way you get that $100 is if you hold out your hand and you grab hold of it. God loves us so much. And he sent his son Jesus as the gift. We have to accept it and receive it. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. I, I just want you to know right now, I love the fact that as I was reading that, someone in the audience was quoting it with their mouth as someone who's connected with the Word of God. That's an awesome thing. The fourth truth is this. God is the final judge. God, we don't get to decide anything because we're not the owner. God's the owner. God decides everything. God determines and, and, and we have this mentality that if we live a good life, that we're all going to heaven. I've got news for you, folks. That's not going to happen. God says there's only one way to come to Jesus Christ, or come to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So you want to get to heaven with God one day? It's through Jesus. You can't do good enough things to make it happen. You can't earn it. And just by being a good person, I have news for you, we're not all going to heaven. It's just, it's a reality. God is the final judge. Psalm 9, 7 and 8 says, The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice, and He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. God's the judge. God's the judge. God's the owner. He's patient and he's loving, but his love causes him to be just. And he is the judge that will determine our lives. I find it interesting in here that when Jesus finishes the parable, he asks the question, what will the owners of the vineyard do? But he doesn't give them time to answer. I love it. What will the owners of the vineyard do? I'll tell you what they're going to do. Look at verse 10 and 11. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. We want to say, well, surely he'll understand. No, if you're a sharecropper and you have, you're the landowner and you have sharecroppers working for you, and go back to that picture that we saw earlier. Those people, if they didn't do what the landowner wanted, you know what? They didn't work his field anymore. They went on to someone else. There's someone else who's willing. And I wonder at times, we say, okay, well, God, I'm, I'm just here. He said, are you working my field? The sharecropper is a person who's responsible to the landowner and says, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to carry out what God asked me to do. The lesson for me in this is if those who reject God's Son, the cornerstone, that they will fall under His judgment. 
2 Thessalonians 1, 6-8 says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the west of this country was being settled, there was a trail that developed, and people would go from the east over the mountains of Colorado and populated Oregon and California. That's right, oh, yeah, Oregon, California. There was a particular trail that went over the mountains, and on the eastern slope of the mountains, where they established the road, there was this big rock that was just kind of buried in the middle of the road. And countless numbers of, of wagons would hit that and break their, you know, there were wagons scattered along the side because they'd hit that rock and it destroyed a wheel or they had to stop and spend many days repairing that. This rock became a, a tremendous detriment to travel across this trail. Well, I don't know how long it took them, but finally someone said, well, let's dig the rock out. Uh, and so they dug the rock out. One guy did, and he rolled it over the edge of the hill and it rolled down into a stream. Well, uh, it didn't plug up the stream. It wasn't that big, but it, it did serve as a stepping stone. So you could step on that rock and you could get across the stream without getting, getting your clothes wet. And so for years... That was where that rock sat. Then some settler decided he was going to build him a cabin just over the edge, away from the edge of that road there. And so he built him a cabin and settled there. And as he was looking around, he's like, man, that rock out there would really be a great doorstop for my cabin door when I'm trying to hold it open. So he, he hauled the rock out, hauled it up to his front porch, put it on his porch, and it would hold the door open when he wanted the air to come into the cabin. Well, his grandson grew up, and he went back east and decided that he was going to study geology. And so he one time came back to visit, and he started looking at this rock that was on his grandpa's front porch. And he said, hey, I think this is something other than just dirty old muddy rock. He started looking at it, and it was the largest single largest gold nugget that has ever been found on the eastern slope of Colorado. For years, it had been a stumbling block. It had destroyed wagons as they tried to go across. It was of great value, but nobody knew about it. And so they rolled it off into the... It's like, well, let's bring it up here. And finally, someone says, wait a minute. You're rich. This is the hugest gold nugget. And I wonder at times if we are kind of like that. God says, listen, I'm the landowner. I want to warn you. I want you in my, in my family. You won't listen to the prophets. I'm going to send you my son. And it says in the text that to some, Jesus was the cornerstone, but to others, he was a stumbling block. And I think many people have stumbled over Jesus, not realizing that he is the greatest value in our world and in our lives. I've got a couple of takeaways that I'd like to encourage you with today. And I think I got these on the screen. Number one, maybe I don't. 
They're in your notes, in your notes. So if you haven't glanced at that, look at those notes. Number one, the first takeaway is this. Have you acknowledged God's claim on your life? He is the landowner. He made you. He has rightful ownership to you. Have you acknowledged that? Have you accepted him into your life and said, okay, I surrender. You are the one in charge. The second takeaway is this. Have you accepted his son as your Lord and Savior? It's one thing to acknowledge that God is the master. It's another thing to accept the gift. Have you accepted his son? If you haven't, today's a great opportunity for you to do that. And while we're finishing this up, I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come back up. The third thing is, are you being a good steward of the vineyard where God has placed you? God has placed each one of us in different places. Are you being a good steward or are you living for you? The reality is we're sharecroppers. We work for God. God blesses us with what we need. Are you being a good steward? Fourth thing that's a takeaway for us is, do you remember that you don't own anything? It's all His, and He has number one rights to everything that you think is yours. There is a mentality that takes place in a person that changes who they are at a core level when you admit this is not mine. It all belongs to him. There's maybe somebody here today that needs to say, I need to surrender to that truth. Maybe you've been working hard to accomplish things and you're so busy you don't have time to even interact with people because I'm all about getting my act together. I want to invite you this morning to adopt a sharecropper's mentality. The truth is, sometimes the story about me is really about God. And this morning, as we sing our invitation song, I want to invite you, if you have the need, would you come forward? Maybe you, maybe you need to stand in front of the body and say, listen, I've made some decisions. I just want, I want, I want to be accountable. And I want to say, I, this is 